This morning, we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, the blue Bible in front of you is now your Bible. Congratulations, you're a new owner of a Bible. And if you go to page 621, our text will begin on the very bottom of page 621 of that Bible. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 13, and we are going to read all the way through chapter 10. It sounds like a lot, but there's a lot of poetry, so it, it's a lot, it's a lot. That's okay. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, starting in verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few people in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low places. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be, will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house 
leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. What a text. If there is one takeaway from our study so far in Ecclesiastes, it is that we need wisdom. We need wisdom. We all, whether we like to say it or not, we all, no matter what our age is, we all need wisdom. Last week we learned that two things are certain in life. It's not death and taxes, but it is death and the uncertainty of life. Two things are certain. You will die, and after you're born, before you die, everything's uncertain. Those are your two certainties. And so in this in-between, in this mystery of life, this enigma, this uncertainty, we need to know how to navigate with wisdom. The problem, however, is that there are lots of options on the table for how to navigate life. There are lots of options that are labeled as wisdom. We live in an age where the evening news is full of people, no matter what channel you watch, that will give it to you straight. No spin zone. Ironically, every single one of those people tell it to you differently. So which one's why? Ask them. They'll tell you. It's them. There's too many options for what we call wisdom. Whether it's your self-help books, which clutter and pollute bookstores, or it's podcasts. If you don't know what that is, it's just a radio talk program. Whatever it is, everyone wants to say they have wisdom. And you know I need wisdom, so I'm going to listen up. The problem is, is they're all selling something different. And the result is often that wisdom is mistaken for folly, and folly is mistaken for wisdom. Maybe worse, it's exchanged knowingly. Yeah, they used to say that was wise, but this is really the way to do it. So to help us navigate the uncertainty of life, we need true wisdom. Solid wisdom. Maybe we would even say objective wisdom, tried and true from above. We need wisdom that we can stand upon in the ups and downs. Wisdom that surpasses and stands still, I guess not surpasses, but holds fast in the winds and waves of culture and its changing definition of wisdom. We need a clear picture of what wisdom is and we need a clear picture of what wisdom is not, or what foolishness is, or we will be duped. In our passage this morning, the preacher does just that. In what is an enigmatic passage itself, a bit mysterious, I don't know if you found mystery in it when I was reading it, I have found much mystery in it this week while I have read it. 
It's full of some strange sayings, not a lot of organization, but there is one thing that is abundantly clear from verse 13 of chapter 9 to verse 20 of chapter 10. Wisdom is prized and folly has a peril that will lead to death. The preacher wants us to think about folly and wisdom and specifically what is true about each of them. He gives us a clear picture of both. And through this, he wants us to leave the text knowing not just what they are, but our takeaway is flee from folly and walk with wisdom. The preacher wants us to leave this text and know that in life, in all circumstances, we are to flee from folly and to walk with wisdom. Now that's a broad and somewhat general statement. However, I think that's what the preacher wants us to have because the passage has a breadth of focus. He talks about kings, couriers, lumberjacks, farmers, dead flies, more kings, serpents, and around it all out, talking birds. So there's a lot of application in this text. There's a lot of folly to be aware of. But there's just a little bit of wisdom here for us to follow as we walk on the way. In the midst of his somewhat erratic conversation, he consistently repeats wisdom 11 times and folly 10 times. In what one commentator called the preacher's scattered, perhaps even frantic effort to express himself, we do see a clear picture of foolishness, of folly, and a clear picture of wisdom. Whether it's politics, whether it's our jobs, or whether it's just our everyday conversations or maybe the thoughts in our heads, this passage has something to say to us about folly and wisdom. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to draw from all of these stories, all these comparisons between the fool and the wise, four big ideas. First, the peril of folly. This will be our longest point. It's what the preacher emphasizes the most in his text. The peril of folly. Our second point is the power of wisdom. Then we will see the promise of wisdom And at last, the path of wisdom. The peril of folly, the power of wisdom, the promise of wisdom, and the path of wisdom. Now, as we go through the passage this morning, you'll probably notice that we're not really going through the passage verse by verse. We're actually not going to put the text back up on the screen because they won't be able to keep up with me. Martin Luther observed that Solomon really makes some harsh transitions. This passage is case in point. And so we're going to make some harsh transitions with him this morning. We're just going to jump into these big ideas and jump around. So I'm going to try to give you lots of cues as to what verse we're in. So I will do my best on that end as we go. But let us jump into our first big idea. The peril of folly. This is probably the biggest emphasis of the text. Constantly, the preacher is giving us this comparison. Folly wisdom, foolish man, or the fool and the wise. Yet the recurring point is that folly is dangerous. It's perilous. And we can group these perils, these dangers, into three categories. The first category is unrighteousness. Look at chapter 10, verses 2 and 3 with me. 
A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. In wisdom literature, in the Old Testament at large, to be on the right is to be on the strong side, the good side, and more importantly, more specifically, the morally upright side, to be righteous. That is where the wise man's heart inclines him, leans him. But the fool's heart leans him the opposite direction. Not to what is morally right, what is good, but to what is immoral and what is bad. And even if the fool can dress up and look like he's wise, walking on the road, the way, he will eventually act or speak more specifically maybe even confess that he is actually a fool. His unrighteousness cannot be hidden. His unrighteousness will automatically, naturally rise up and expose him for the fool that he is. Foolishness, folly, leads to unrighteousness. The second danger of folly is the futility that it leads to. Futility. In verses 8 through 11, we read about everyday tasks. And maybe these aren't everyday tasks for you and me. But for the preacher's audience, they were very regular. You had hunters and farmers and quarriers, apparently snake charmers, lumberjacks. And these everyday tasks can often lead to tragedy. The hunter will fall into his own trap. It's not his foolishness. Sometimes you just forget where the trap is. It's a danger. It's a it's a danger of the job. You might fall into the trap. The farmer who wants to move his boundary wall, which is usually made of rocks. You know what else likes to live in rocks? Snakes. Indiana doesn't have a lot of rocks, so maybe you don't know that. Snakes like rocks. <laughs> These rock walls have little nests of snakes in them. You knock it down to make your farm bigger, and you get bit. The courier gets crushed by the rocks. The lumberjack, maybe he's downhill and the log rolls over his leg or maybe an axe gets him. The snake charmer gets bit by the snake. All of these can happen to any one of these occupations. All these can happen to anyone except the last one, the snake one. It's a really easy one to avoid. I feel like Solomon could have been really clear. Just kill them. Don't charm them. Kill them. Easy answer. Other than the snake, these are all hard to avoid. Yet the, white, or the wise person, he might not escape the tragedy, but he can work to avoid the danger. He will do it by sharpening his axe before he tries to cut the wood. He works smarter, not harder, so to speak. The preacher says that will lead to success. However, the fool, his end is not success. His end is weariness. In verses 12 to 15, we see that the fool talks so much, he isn't getting work done. All of his time, his energy, his focus, it consumes all of him. All of his talk consumes him. Not only is he consumed by his lips, what they produce are foolish and mad there's no gain from them, is what he's trying to say. It's just craziness. This is probably because they're talking about what they don't know. 
talking about what tomorrow will hold. But as Ecclesiastes has clearly said, we don't know what tomorrow will hold. But the fool occupies himself with talking about that. The fool consumes himself with tomorrow and he gets nothing done today. In the end, verse 15, that toil wearies him and he can't even find the city. This is a proverbial way of saying that he's tired and he's lost. The peril of folly is that it leaves you hurt, empty, tired, and lost. It leads to futility. Then the last danger of folly that the preacher emphasizes in this passage is disorder and destruction. Look back at verses 5 to 7 with me. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. So here the preacher, he sees something again. He's making all these observations from life in the second half of the book. And he sees an entire, complete flip of order in a society. Now in our anti-wealthy and pro-working class culture, we say, good, put the rich on the ground and put them low and put the poor up high. That's just not his point. He's not making a classism argument. He's showing us that whenever order is flipped, when dignity is stripped from those who should receive it, and those who have wisdom are not put in places where they can exercise it, we have disorder and destruction. The assumption is that the rich would have education and wisdom. The prince should be on the horse because he has dignity. When fools are placed on high, when the wise are cast down low, and when those deserving dignity are stripped of it, there's disorder and chaos. And down in verses 16 and 18 of chapter 10, we see the results of that. We see a young prince, someone who is improperly appointed, not a wise man. And we see the misappropriation of values that he has. He feasts in the morning. He's drunk before 11. And without leadership and protection, the people become sloths themselves. Down in verse 18, through sloth, through that child king, the culture that he produces, the roofs sink in, the house leaks. The peril of folly is threefold. It's unrighteousness in your own life, it's futility in your work, and it's disorder and destruction in society. You can say that it affects you, it affects what you do, and it affects those around you. That's the peril of folly. And it's dangerous, it's poisonous, but not only that, it's also potent. Not only is there danger in it, its potency is the greatest danger. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointments give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Just a couple of flies that annoyingly, because I hate flies, annoyingly fly in 
get stuck in the perfume bottle, die because it smells terrible, and there's no oxygen. They fall down in the perfume, and it ruins the whole bottle. Or think of the movie scene. It's maybe it's a, a military movie. I was trying to think of a movie, but it's better just put your imagination caps on. An army's going into battle. They're told, don't fire, be silent. It's an ambush, and you have that one fool who discharges his weapon early, whether it's out of foolish zeal or he is just a klutz and he falls and somehow discharges his weapon, the whole battle's lost because one person alerted the enemy. The preacher emphasizes this all throughout this passage. It's the one king who placed a fool in power. It's the little snakes that are in the rock wall that bite you. It is the little bird that carries your private words to the king and leads to your death. It's a little bit of folly that overcomes wisdom. It is very potent. And this is most clearly understood when we understand and think about the folly of sin. The perfect picture of a little bit of folly that outweighs wisdom and honor. Sin is just a little thing, isn't it? It started as a simple little lie in a garden. And then that lie was accepted in place of a truth. And ever since, it has wreaked havoc on the entire universe. Every human to live and every square inch of creation has suffered ever since the truth was exchanged for a lie. And not only on the entire story of sin, but think about sin in your own life. What has caused more pain and suffering in your heart, maybe in your life, in your relationships, than the sin that you or someone else thought was innocent? How potent is that one look? How potent is that one night, that one lie, that one purchase, that one mean thought? That one look turns into a habit and then addiction. That one night turns into a fling and then a double life and a divorce and a broken family. That one lie turns into a flurry of lies and no one can trust you. That one purchase forms a habit and a new source of therapy and a new source of happiness that's always fleeting. And that one mean thought turns into resentment and it quickly becomes deep-seated bitterness against another human being made in the image of God, maybe even a brother or sister in your family. You see how the little folly of sin is potent. Just like not all rectangles or squares, not all folly is sin, but all sin is foolish. And the preacher even says, one sinner can ruin what? They have the same potency. The brothers and sisters, friends, what little folly have you believed or followed? Whatever the folly is, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take much to ruin the whole lot. Or maybe one of our Proverbs, one apple, one bad apple, spoils the whole bushel. So our first half, the first takeaway, flee folly. Run from it. See its poison and its potency, its danger and its destruction, and run from it. It may be enticing, 
but let it be unmasked for what it really is. And while there is much danger in folly, the preacher shows us two ways that wisdom is better than folly. It's power and it's promise. First, let's look at its power, the power of wisdom. As we've seen, folly leads to the futility and weariness in life. But in the opening verses of this passage, we see that in wisdom, there is great power. Not futility, not weariness, but power. Look at chapter 9, verses 13 through 18 with me. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few people in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor, wise man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war. So in this story, the preacher sees this great irony. There's this little city with just a few people in it, and then there's this big, bad king who comes. And he builds this great siege work. And yet, it's the poor wise man in the little city with few people that is great in the eyes of the preacher. One is great in the eyes of the world, but the preacher shows us there's one that's great in his eyes, and that is the poor wise man using his wisdom to overcome the great king. Now, what did the poor wise man do? What did he say? What was so profound? No idea. But he's quiet and calculated. His quiet, wise words are more valuable than the shouting of rulers and fools, even weapons of war. Imagine, again, a picture, a scene of a king, and he has all of his counselors around him, and they're all shouting at each other, no, you're wrong, no, we should do it this way, no, we should ambush, no, we should split, no, we should stay together. All of that shouting is foolish. There is one quiet, wise word that should be listened to. Folly sounds strong and powerful often in our world, doesn't it? It usually looks more like the room of counselors shouting than the quiet poor man off to the side. But the shouting fool is simply a madman. Real power, according to the preacher, lies in the midst of the world, in a midst of a world that paints the strong as wise. It, 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 it lies within the poor wise man. This is, or it should be, a jarring statement in our culture. How much of our culture, how much of our politics, how much of our business culture paints the loud, outgoing bully as the strong man? The biggest and loudest must be the wisest. Everyone's listening to him. 
The one who can bully his way in. Point out everyone else's issues. Be critical, but never constructive. That's the wise guy. The one that can make grandiose promises. That's the person to follow. Our text is unmasking what our culture says is why. It's not the loud man. It's not the rich man. It's not the bully. It's the quiet, seemingly humble or humble man. Poor, it's not because he's wise because he is poor. It's that he's humble in his wisdom. He may not be remembered. He may not be recognized. And he may not be respected. But he is the one who has true power. True power is found in wisdom. Not only does the preacher counter the perception of power that is perceived to be in folly with the power that's really in wisdom, he also shows us that the promises of folly are only found and fulfilled in wisdom. The first promise we've already seen, it's right living. It's righteousness. Chapter 10, verse 2, the wise man's heart inclines him to the right. Righteous living begins with wisdom. Wisdom, in its most general sense, is to fear God and keep his commandments. And so the man who has a right understanding of who God is and who understands the calling in which God has given is the wise man and who will live in accord with God's ways. He will obey him. He will have right living. The second promise of wisdom in the passage is success. Now in verse 10, we see what success means. It doesn't mean you're going to have the biggest house, the boat, and everything. But it means that your tasks will be done well and hopefully safely. The success of the one who sharpens his tools is not just that he gets his work done, but he gets it done, he gets it done well. And they don't just get their jobs done, but if you keep going in verse 12, we read that the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. That word for favor is the same word for favor, the favor that Noah received from God, the favor that Ruth received in the sight of Boaz, the favor that Esther found in the sight of the king. It's grace. The words of the wise man his mouth will win him grace. It will win him a hearing and a welcoming. It will win him favor. Now, will the wise always find favor? Well, did the poor wise man in chapter 9, verses 13 to 17 always find favor? No, absolutely not. In chapter 9, verse 16, he is despised. Not favored, despised. So the preacher's point is not that you'll be loved by all, that life will go well and easy like we normally define success, but it's that your words will not consume you, but will be productive. You will get work done, your words will help you, they won't hurt you, and they will mean more. That is the favor that a wise man's words find him. Then the last promise of wisdom is the flourishing and joy of a society. In contrast to the disorder and destruction of the foolish kingdom, we see in verse 17 a kingdom led by princes who feast at the proper time. Not in the morning, 
not like David whenever he is supposed to be out at war. They feast at the proper time, after the victory. And they feast for the proper reasons, for strength, and not just, and not at all, drunkenness. The result, then, we see it in verse 19. It's prosperity for the people. See, in verse 16, he talks about the bad king. In verse 18, he gives us the result. In verse 17, he talks about the good king. In verse 19, it's the result, the prosperity of the people. They get to enjoy the bread that is made for laughter. They get to drink the wine that gladdens life. They get to have the monetary means to navigate the life around them. Wisdom brings prosperity, not houses that leak. So the question is, where do you look for these promises? For righteousness, for favor, and for flourishing? Do you have a favorite podcaster? Do you have a favorite self-help author? Do you maybe think about the previous generation's way of life and think that that has to be the right way to do it? Do you look at a politician? Ultimately, it is through wisdom, which is fearing God and keeping his commandments that leads to these things. Now we saw that we should flee folly because of its poison and potency. We saw that true power and great power lies in quiet, humble wisdom, not in the loud fool. And we've seen that the promises of right living, favor, and flourishing come from wisdom. Now, faced with these truths, the question isn't, do I want folly or wisdom? That's a no-brainer. Or it should be. If you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, what's the way of wisdom? We've been saying wisdom leads to these things, but what is wisdom? How do I walk the path of wisdom? What does it look like to be wise if it leads to power and promise that I want? What is its path? Well, as I've said, the broadest and most general answer is the fear of God and the keeping of his commandments. Pastor Dan will actually preach on that in a couple weeks when we get to chapter 12. In our text, there are two ways we can be wise. There are two ways we can practice wisdom. We can show that we fear God and we can keep his commandments. He shows us these with two commands. And what's important about these commands is that while much of the text has to do with all of life, these commands have a very specific application. They have to do with how you think about, talk about, and talk to authority over you. These commands focus on a relationship with governing authority. And so in the maze of this proverb, and all these things, these two commands kind of give us a glimpse into wise citizenship, the path of wisdom as a wise citizen. The first command is in chapter 10, verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. For calmness will lay great offenses to rest. The point is, wisdom is patient. Wisdom is patient. This is an echo from our sermon two or three weeks ago. We read, keep the king's command. And 
be not hasty to go from his presence. His point is don't turn against the God-given authority over you. Just because you don't like it, or even if you disagree with it, or even if a disagreement has come up between you and it, a wise person doesn't just run off or rebel against the God-given authority over you. Even if that authority is foolish. Fools are found in all places. Ecclesiastes 5.1, they're in the place of worship. Ecclesiastes 4.13, they're on the throne. Even if they're foolish, you do not leave your place. Regardless, the answer is not to abandon the authority, to rebel or just disregard the authority and live like it doesn't matter. Proverbs 25.15 explains that with patience, a ruler may be persuaded. You can never reconcile or even have a rightful place to speak up if you simply run and rebel. One commentator explained, anger irritates and inflames the wound, but weakness cleanses and heals it. Meekness cleanses and heals it. Resentful pride adds fury to the storm, but a mild demeanor changes it into a calm. The path of wisdom is a path of patient action. And the path of wisdom is the path of prudent speech. Chapter 10, verse 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. The path of wisdom is the path that is slow to speak. Especially, slow to speak ill about the authority that God has placed over us. And notice the places. He's not saying, don't curse the king in public. Don't curse the king at the town hall meeting or to his face. Don't speak evil against the king in your thoughts or in your bedroom. He's not saying, don't, don't just mutter it under your breath. Don't even think about it. And the warning is because the king will find out. Now, in the preacher's day, that's dangerous. If the king finds out that you're cursing him or speaking evil about him, what do you think will happen? You won't live very, long, very much longer. You will die. But our day, it's a badge of honor if we talk bad about the authority over us. Whether it's our boss, whether it's our governing authorities, whether it's our parents, whether it's any kind of other relationship where authority structures exist, it's a badge of honor to throw off authority. To say, to post videos on Facebook. I don't need a little bird to carry my message. I have Twitter. I will tweet it myself. How foolish, how unwise, and how lamentable, friends, how lamentable for a Christian to speak ill and curse his king publicly and act like it's a good thing. What a timely reminder. In our political climate, entering into another presidential election, Christian, be careful 
with your thoughts and your words. Scripture doesn't care if you like the politician. It doesn't care what you think or what the Constitution allows you to say. Scripture cares about whether or not you fear God and keep His commandments. The path of wisdom is the path that is slow in speech. The passage shows us that it's the madman and the fool who shouts. It's the fool who consumes himself with his words. But it's the wise who are careful with their thoughts and their words. If we call ourselves Christians, we ought to be slow to act and slow to speak. James tells us this. James chapter 1, verse 19. Be slow to anger. Be slow to speak. Be quick to listen. We are called to this path, not just because it sounds wise, but because it's a path that Christ himself walked and has called us to walk with him on. The Lord Jesus is the path maker of this path of wisdom. If you want to walk as Jesus walked, you will be careful with your words and your thoughts. The path of wisdom the preacher is describing is a shadow of the path that Jesus walked and he calls us to walk with him today. It was on his path of wisdom that the rulers and authorities, they didn't just disagree with him, they attacked him, they accused him. They arrested him, they lied about him, and they ultimately crucified him. And yet he didn't leave his place. He didn't start a political rebellion. He didn't start bashing them, or as he could, as God, dropping them through the bottom of the floor, through the ground. He continued on and stayed in his place. As he was oppressed on this path, as he was afflicted, he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that is silent before the shears, so he did not open his mouth, he did not know violence, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And what was seen to be fully and to seen to seen seen to be folly and foolish, Christ crucified, a dead man hanging on a tree, that is the power and wisdom of God. Because it's through Christ on the on the cross. His shameful and foolish death, that forgiveness of sins was paid for. That the weak in the spirit are given the strength by his spirit. That the foolish are made wise by his word and through his spirit. It is Jesus who is the wisdom of God, who blazed this path of wisdom for us. He cut the path, he's the trailblazer. In his life, he lived with the patient action that the preacher talks about here. And he lived with the prudent speech that the preacher commands here. In his life, he lived, in his death and resurrection, he revealed the power of God to forgive the sinner and to bring to life the dead. The greatest power imaginable. And through his spirit, he gives the power to follow him and the promise of righteousness, grace, and flourishing that may be glimpses today but will be an eternal reality when he returns. Jesus is the ultimate poor wise man despised by the world. Jesus is the ultimate display of power, the power of wisdom over folly. He is the ultimate fulfillment 
of the promises of wisdom that we see in this passage. The path is not simply wise. It is Jesus' path that we are called to walk in this text. As he walked, he walked it for us, and he calls us and equips us to walk it with him. So Christian, don't let folly deceive you. It is poisonous. It leads to weariness, toil, and death. This passage shows us all of those things. I hope, if nothing else, we leave this morning and we want to run from foolishness because we see its danger. But as we run from foolishness, let us run down the path of wisdom that Jesus has set before us. Before you make that comment about the politician or your boss or any other leader, before you post that video, before you engage in that conversation even over coffee, before you take that shortcut in life thinking it's not that dangerous, before you minimize the evil of your sin thinking it's just one time, I just need to get ahead this once, ask, is this the path that Jesus walked and called me and equipped me to walk after him? Is this how a citizen of his kingdom speaks? Is this how a citizen of his kingdom responds to affliction. Let us put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let us respond as we have been freed to respond. We're no longer enslaved to the foolishness of the world, the sin that reigned over us that makes us want to act out in anger. We're free. We're free. We're servants of Christ and his children given new hearts that can respond as he has determined and tells us is good and right and righteous to do so. So let us respond as God's children and his servants. Let us free from, flee from folly and walk with wisdom as we follow Christ on his way. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you that you expose to us what folly is and what it leads to. You expose to us how we can often believe that folly leads to power and folly leads to promise, that the ways of the world must be right because they apparently work. Father, we pray that you would always help us have glasses on to see through this. Give us your wisdom to see the foolishness of those things and help us to walk in a way that walks as Christ walked. Help us to be careful with our words. Help us to be slow to run and throw off authority, but to trust your goodness and your grace and your wisdom in establishing that authority over us. Be thou our wisdom, O God, and be our true word. Let Jesus be our leader and guide in this life. And may we walk his path in the way that he has called us to walk. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.